When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Church, this morning we had the privilege of hearing from David Fenn, who's going to be preaching, which is going to be excellent. We've con- we're continuing in our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, and um, David's been up sharing in, in different formats up here, but for the first time preaching today at Williamstown Church. David has been worshipping here with Geraldine since the start of last year, and we've been blessed to have David and Geraldine in our church community in that time. For his working life, David is a psychiatrist. Um, and works overseeing uh, mental health in the Western uh, hospital kind of mental health system with Melbourne Health. So we're really blessed, um, David, to have you preaching this morning and look forward to hearing from you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I pray that as we speak this morning that you would take what is of you and apply it to our hearts and their ears. And Lord, that which is not from you, I pray, would fall to the side. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Last week, Megan spoke to us about the wall, those challenging moments in our lives when everything seems to be falling apart. We don't know what to do next. This morning, we're talking about going back to go forward, breaking the power of the past. (coughs) To some extent, we're all shaped by our personal histories, our parents, the country and culture of our birth, Important figures from our past, life events, they all play a part in forming our character and our worldviews. In some sense, we're all shaped by that. We can all point to people, events in our lives that affect us in profound ways. And we can think of constructive influences that have built strength and given us creative purpose in our lives. Sometimes we're hurt and damaged people. Just things happening along the way which... I'm just reading at the moment a book, um, Tim Whitman's The Shepherd's Hut. It's a novel set in rural WA and explores the impact of a violent, alcoholic father on a young boy's development. When this monster of a father suddenly dies, Jaxie Claxton, who's the protagonist of the novel, hits the wall. He's disoriented doesn't know what to do next. He doesn't know who he is and what it means to be a man or whether he's in fact just destined to repeat his father's dreadful mistakes. 
The constant exposure to his father's drunken violence has fostered fear, anger, suspicion of authority. Jack sees a hostile, aggressive young boy and doesn't really know how to be anything else. He's set up to respond in destructive ways to the challenges that inevitably confront him. And with this start in life, you might think that Jaxie's got no hope of breaking out of this cycle of violence, anger, aggression and more pain. Henry Rowland said you might know him. I think that humans have a huge capacity to carry pain and sadness. There are things that haunt us our entire lives and we're unable to let them go. The good times seem almost effervescent and dreamlike in comparison with the times that didn't go well. So what power does the past exert over our lives? Is it really all doom and gloom? Are we really determined just to keep on repeating the same old mistakes? We read in the Old Testament of God visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. If you talk to the psychologists, they talk about intergenerational trauma impacting successive generations of children. There are cycles of abuse. Some child victims of abuse become adult perpetrators. We know this. Can we escape the baggage, the sin, the mistakes, the trauma of our past? Or are we destined to repeat the same old mistakes over and over? In this place, we believe that following Jesus provides a way out, a means of escaping the power of the past. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. The scriptures teach us that God takes all of us, all of our triumphs and traumas, all our hopes and our horrible histories, and as we walk with him, he creates something new, something blessed, something that we can hardly imagine. Thanks. Patty for reading the text. The first thing that I noticed about our text this morning is that Joseph's brothers made a choice. Faced with the crisis, they took the initiative. I think most of us probably here this morning know the story. Back in Canaan, the brothers had gotten tired of Jacob's behaviour, Jacob's favourite son. Joseph was a spoiled younger son. Remember, he had a fancy, multicoloured coat. He dreamed of ruling over everyone else. The brothers got sick of it. In a fit of spite, they came close to killing him. Do you remember the story? They didn't kill him. They settled for selling him to slavery to some traders who were on their way to Egypt. Joseph was unjustly accused of having an affair with his master's wife and thrown into prison. He spent years there, and even after incorrectly interpreting the butler's dream, remember that story? Nothing had gone well until Pharaoh had a dream, and Joseph predicted that a severe famine was about to engulf the land. So he became the Prime Minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. The famine threatened the family back in Canaan, so Joseph's brothers travelled down to Egypt for food and encountered Joseph there. So the roles are reversed. Joseph's now in a position of power. The brothers are now in his hands. So they're guilty. They've sold him into slavery. 
And now they're standing before him. What's going to happen now? Eventually, the, Jacob and the whole family went down to Egypt just to avoid starvation. The problem arose when Jacob died. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Suddenly, Jacob's dead. Jacob's Joseph's brothers are facing a crisis. Perhaps up to this point, they'd been confident that Joseph's respect for his dad would protect them. But Joseph's a powerful figure in Egypt now. With Jacob gone, Will Joseph demand justice for the cruelty his brothers meted out the years before? So the brother is in crisis. Jacob's no longer present to hold all the parties together. They're insecure, frightened, the brothers I'm talking about, uncertain what's going to happen next. They're vulnerable, powerless in a foreign land. They know they're guilty of wronging Joseph and now their lives are hanging by a thread. Joseph's a pretty powerful character. Their past has come back to haunt them. And they know that they deserve to be punished. There's a couple of things to notice. First, pretty strange set of circumstances. Who could have predicted that Joseph was going to be in a position of power over them so many years ago? Or that a famine would force these brothers to move to Egypt decades later? Who could have imagined this totally unexpected reversal of fortune in Joseph's favour? The timing of Jacob's departure is a bit unfortunate as well, isn't it? Surely he could have held on a few more years until the famine had passed and they, perhaps they could have it out of Egypt. Or at least get things sorted out between them, between the brothers and Joseph before Jacob died. Couldn't he have done something about it? This is all just terribly inconvenient for the brothers. Have you ever come across anyone who lives their life and thinks like that? That make excuses? Explain why this should never have happened? Not really their fault at all, they tell you. What they're doing is trying to evade responsibility for their conduct. They're in a crisis because they've done something foolish or very wrong and things are catching up. They don't want, really, to own their guilt and face the consequences. They're afraid of what might not happen next if they do own up. In my work, I see many people who are paralysed by fear. They try to bury their fear by adopting various strategies, try to cope. Psychologists talk about defence mechanisms. Years gone by, talk to psychiatrists like me, and that speak of the development of neuroses. But I've come to see people simply refuse to acknowledge that there's any problem at all. Failure to recognise a problem, one way to avoid facing it. I think we've all done it sometime in our lives. Others create this illusionary world of pretence. They pretend that everything's really quite okay. Plenty of distractions to help us to avoid facing up to the issues. You can probably more than as real as I can think of some of the things people do. Hide themselves in work, become workaholics, use alcohol, substances, escape from these problems. Gambling, another way of avoiding painful reality. 
Can you see where the brothers are? Joseph's brothers are in a terrible bind and they have to make a choice. Would they pretend that nothing had changed, put their collective heads in the sand, or they're going to grasp the nettle? The thing about the brothers is they did actually face up. They chose to return to the scene of the crime, to face the issues, accept the pain, even if this meant becoming Joseph's slaves. We all remember the story of the prodigal son. He demanded the inheritance from his father and then wasted the wealth on riotous living in a foreign country. Jesus tells the story, Luke 15, and says, When he came to his senses, the prodigal son was in the same position Joseph's brothers were in, he found himself in a hopeless position. Feeding the pigs, still didn't have enough to eat, he hit the wall. And what he realised was it was actually better to go back and face the music with his father. Often enough, I see people that refuse to mend broken relationships. Or else they've tried to fix things up, but just can't seem to make it work. Have you ever been there? I don't think it's ever really easy. But sometimes... We have to decide to go back again and try with the Lord's help. The brothers realise that genuine reconciliation with Joseph is really the only path forward. I want to look at that word reconciliation. So we've talked about Joseph's brothers facing up and making a decision. The game, the chosen that they want to reconcile. Verse 17. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him, down before Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. Just reading through those verses, there's a couple of things we can point out. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Firstly, they embarked upon a formal process, a structured formal process of reconciliation, involved consultation and planning. If you read through those verses, it's actually quite interesting. They just didn't just say, oh, we're going to fix it up with Joseph, we'll rock along here and say a few things and it'll be okay. It was actually quite structured. It was a correct way of doing things, it was measured, it was timely. It showed respect for authority and a willingness to submit and obey. Invoked Jacob as the authority figure and that they were willing to be obedient to that authority. They sent a message to Joseph first up and then they arranged a formal meeting with him. My point is simply, it was well thought out. I didn't think about it in the spur of a moment. They planned a reconciliation process. The next thing I noticed about their reconciliation was the posture of humility that they adopted. There's a humble confession of wrongdoing. There was a frank and complete acknowledgement of all that was wrong in the past. It's not very fashionable today to confess sin. I don't know, I very rarely hear it in my work. Um, in contrast, the brothers here didn't try and save face. Didn't gloss over all of the nasty, embarrassing details. 
They didn't go to psychotherapy in a private place with someone that no one else knew. They went public. Direct, close, very personal contact with their brother Joseph. The personal communication acknowledged them of their wrongdoing. It was full on. Third thing I noticed about this process, a very clear request for forgiveness. He says it twice if you read through those verses. I ask you to forgive. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your Father. They're humble. They ask for forgiveness. We were talking about this a couple of weeks and how Jesus is going to change the night. Asking forgiveness can be very difficult and personally very costly. It's a loss of face. None of us feel terribly good. We lose our personal pride and self-esteem. Have to accept that we're broken, we're fragile, done the wrong thing. First thing I notice about this process is the tears. It says Joseph wept. It was emotional, it was deeply personal, it wasn't cold, intellectual, rational, it was a personal meeting of minds. There was this emotional difficulty that they had to work through. And lastly about this, it was costly. Think about it. We are your slaves. And Joseph was in a position to make them do that. When we face up to the things we've done in the past, sometimes we have to accept that there's going to be damage done and our compensation may need to be paid. A debt is due. So reconciliation is often painful and difficult. It's death to self, perhaps the gift of life to someone else. Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself. He cost him cost him. Ultimately it means participating in God's plans and purpose. Becoming reconciled means entering into the life of God and participating in his work. The last thing I want to do is look at Joseph's response. We've talked about the crisis. We've talked about what the brothers did to reconcile. I'll look at Joseph. How did Joseph rise above the bitter pain the trauma inflicted by his brothers. I've got three things to say about Joseph. Verse 20 says, You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. The first thing about Joseph is he was faithful. He set his heart on God. In the midst of all his trauma and his pain, he was thrust into prison, he was falsely accused, he was in the bottom of a pit. People forgot him after he did them good turns and just left him to rot in prison. He refused to succumb to the pain and the bitterness. It wasn't easy. Year upon year, rotting away in prison. He just accepted it. I remember what um, Megan was talking last week about Job. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Joseph knew that God had a hand in all that happened to him. And he knew that God was present, even in the most difficult times. He refused to relinquish his faith. He recognised somehow 
that his own dreadful personal experience was one part of God's greater plan and purpose being accomplished in his life. God intended it for good, to preserve a numerous people. Joseph accepted that God is sovereign. He's in control. Joseph's not. God knows. God sees. God allows our traumas. The wrongs done to us, our past foolishness, our mistakes and brokenness, all our present and past, God's there. We are simply called to trust him, to believe him, no matter how bad things look. And in doing that, in some mysterious way, we begin to participate in God's plan and purpose. Megan sent me a quote during the week. God, some, this is Peter Gregg from the Red Church. God sometimes identifies something in our history that he wants to release in your destiny. We don't understand, but God knows. Job 42, speaking of Job, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. When we're embroiled in the pain and the confusion, the distress, the loneliness perhaps, Jesus calls us be obedient, to be faithful, to accept the problems and difficulties God allows in our lives, and to live each day with an awareness that in some way they too are part of his purpose. God intended it for good. So Joseph was faithful. Second thing I want to know about Joseph is that he hoped. He did not lose hope. Joseph hopes in God. I just want to quickly read Psalm 131, three verses. I think I can imagine Joseph is thinking this or praying this sort of thing as he's in prison. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me, O Israel. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. I'm conscious that we can be very glib when we're speaking of hope in a dark place. That dark night of the soul is a hard place to be. But I love the psalmist's words. Joseph eschewed proud or haughty eyes. He stilled his soul before the Lord and waited like a winged child. He did not insist on his rights or demand the Lord's attention here and now. He set his heart and his hopes on God and waited patiently. Joseph was faithful. Joseph hopes in God. Third thing about Joseph, he demonstrates a generous love. He showed mercy to his guilty brothers. Verse 20, 21. Don't be afraid. So then don't be afraid, he repeats it. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Read through the Gospels. Time and again, 
we find Jesus showing mercy. He is moved with compassion for the broken and lost lives he encounters day by day. He forgives sins, he overlooks mistakes, he's generous in extending merciful love and compassion to those genuinely seeking help. Nothing miserly or narky or small-minded about Jesus' ministry. He extends the grace of God liberally, generously to all who come to him. Think about it. the blind man, the tax collector, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, the woman of Tyre, the woman caught in adultery. Never a moment of criticism. That's this generous, liberal love expressed, this merciful grace speaking to the heart of God. We can contrast Jesus' merciful generosity with a harsh criticism and judgment which we see with the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. There we see a lack of mercy, a lack of generosity, and willingness to forgive. I'm close to finishing. I'm reminded of Jesus' story of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. After having been given an exorbitant amount of money, this is the unfaithful servant, remember the story of Jesus' story. His, this ungrateful servant is forgiven by the master a massive amount of money, which of course speaks of God's abundant grace. The servant refuses to give a, give a small amount owed to him by another servant. Reversing the position, the master revokes his forgiveness, telling the unmerciful servant that he should have shown mercy, just as the master had mercy on him. God is patient and merciful, but there are limits. There are consequences for those who fail to show mercy. Those who fail to give those, forgive those who are death against them. God is graciously and abundantly merciful and he expects us to emulate that behaviour. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is critical of the Pharisees. Why? These are good people. For failing to show mercy. They're preoccupied with tithing herbs and plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and making sure that all the rules and regulations are right. They want to fulfil the minutiae of the Talmudic law. And what does Jesus say? They have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They have failed to prioritise that which is more important. Justice, mercy, he says, and truth. What does the Lord require of you, Michael asks, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? God is a good God who abundantly blesses his people with good gifts. He's gracious, patient, and merciful. And he calls us to be generously merciful and forgive like that. In extending forgiveness, we release ourselves to live life truly joyfully, and loving. That was what I think is most impressive about Joseph, was the mercy that he showed to his brothers. Just closing, I want to revert to one more verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, it says, the new has come. And he has committed. And if you look at those, that verse in the context at the time, it talks about the message of reconciliation. We are invited to participate with God in this message of reconciliation to a broken world around us. Are we truly bound by the past? I believe that 
as we extend mercy, as we maintain our faith in God and our hope in God, that he does release us from it. It may take time. God lives outside time, isn't he? He is not bound by these things. He is Lord of all Colossians to us. As we remain faithful to him, as we follow Jesus, as we allow the Spirit to constantly lead and guide us, renew us day by day, he is not bound by our past wrongs, our past words. He takes all of our experiences, good and bad, transforms our lives into something new, unexpected, we become fitted for use in his plans to draw the world back into relationship with him. That is our message. That is our ministry. Our ministry of reconciliation. God bless you.